0: For a little over a year we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Since August we've been working our way through chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. And this morning we are going to finish chapter 4 looking primarily at verses uh, 30 and 32. As Daniel read for us this morning, verses 17 through 32, we've been working our way through this section looking at what does it mean to live for Christ in faith and repentance? And I just want to remind you of maybe some basic things that we learned from the book of Ephesians as we begin to close off uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you need a handout or if you need a Bible this morning, if you just want to raise your hand, one of the men are more than happy to give you that. Uh, so we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you need a Bible to be there with us, feel free to raise your hand and that is yours to keep. If you would like a handout so you can see the other passages that I reference, uh, they're more than happy to hand that out also. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, we see what it is to be called to live for Christ. The book of Ephesians answers many questions for us. It gives us much wisdom, but two questions you could be thinking about, particularly if you are, uh, well, for everyone, but let me address the children joining us this morning. There are two essential questions for life. How can I be saved? And how must I live if I am saved? Now whether you are 3 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, or if you're like Abraham and you already got a foot in the grave, these are the most important questions of your life. How can I be saved and how must I live if I am saved? And the book of Ephesians addresses these two very important questions as the whole of Scripture does. So this morning as we look at how to live in faith and repentance, motivated by relationship and redemption, we have to remember first the relationship that has been proclaimed throughout Ephesians. That your hope is completely and fully in Christ. And so you are called in Christ, that is how you are saved, and you walk in Christ by faith and repentance. That is how you must live if you are saved. The calling of Christ is how you are saved, And a life of faith and repentance is how you must live if you are saved. It's important that we state it that way. You don't live by faith and repentance to be saved. You are saved by the calling of Christ. But if you are called by Christ, you must live in faith and repentance. And Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 declares this of the calling of Christ, salvation in Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, we saw the beginning of how you must live in Christ. So look with me just at a few places in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's been many, many months since we have been there. I encourage you to read it. It's available to you all the time. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him just in that little sentence we have an amazing statement about who god is how he has saved us and what our salvation is for blessed or praise be or glory be to god let us praise him he is the one that is praise worthy This is not a proclamation that you must praise Him. This is a proclamation of praise. Whether you praise Him or not, Jesus said, even the rocks will cry out. God is blessed. And so this is a statement of His blessedness and then a declaration of how we know He is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. That He has chosen to bless us. He has chosen to give grace to us. How has He done so? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing, he has blessed us in ways that are not visible. We are blessed in many ways that are visible, but we praise God for those things that he has blessed us in that are not visible, spiritual blessings, blessings of transformation and change, which he will get into. And he says how he did this, even as he chose us, he chose us, how did he choose us in him, in Christ. He didn't choose us for us, which Ephesians will continue to get to. He chose us in Christ, what Christ has done. And when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world. He did this before anything was laid. He did this before he spoke and said, let there be light, let there be darkness, let there be sun, let there be moon. He didn't say let there be darkness, darkness, anyway. Anyway. So let there be animals, let there be creation, let all of these things be. and He spoke them into existence. And here we have proclaimed, before he did that, he purposed and planned salvation. Before the foundation of the world, this was always accomplished in God's mind. And why did he accomplish it? That's what the word that means, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He has accomplished this for a purpose. To cleanse or beautify His bride, as Ephesians 5 will call us. That He would make us holy and blameless. He didn't call us because we were holy and blameless. He called us in Christ, who is holy and blameless. And He called us in Christ that we would be made holy and blameless in Him. And Christian, that means for you, your life is not about your current earthly blessings. Your salvation is not about what God has planned for you here. You have been called by Christ to heavenly blessings. You have been called by Christ and changed to be something that will be before Him holy and blameless. And that's continued in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 11. It says, In Christ we have an inheritance. We have something we are waiting for. We've been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory notice the repeated statements that this is all for god's glory notice the repeated statements that this is all according to his purpose and his plan This is what He does. This is what He is accomplishing in you. And notice the blessing in which He accomplishes, that your hope in Christ means for you a future eternity, a future inheritance. And also notice the means by which He chose to accomplish this. It says, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the proclamation of the gospel, what happened? You believed. And when you believed what also happened, the Holy Spirit sealed you with the promise. He is the sealer of the promise. He is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. As we look at the whole of Scripture, we see what is described here. that The gospel is to be heralded and proclaimed. And who hears the gospel and responds? His people, those whom he has called, those who are his, those whom he died for, those who he lives to make holy and perfect. And so, how do you get saved? Well, at some point in your life, you heard the gospel. You heard that you were a sinner. That you were in rebellion before God. That you were wretched and had nothing to offer God. And by grace, Christ has come that you might be saved. That you might be changed. That you who are not holy would be holy and blameless before Him. You that deserve His wrath, would not receive His wrath, but an eternal inheritance with Him forever. And when you heard that, what happened? You believed, and the Holy Spirit sealed you that that would be your eternity. What we learn from Ephesians chapter 1 is that the grace of God in salvation is that it is completely dependent upon Him. He is the one who saves. It is proclaimed again and again through Ephesians 1, what He has done that you might be saved. It's not about what you've done. There's only one statement in this section that says what you've done and what you've done is when you heard the gospel, you believed. but why did you believe? Because of all he has accomplished to his grace and his glory and his praise, not something in you. In Ephesians chapter 2 then we have the clarity of that because you might read that and argue and say, uh, it seems like though if I believed I, I probably had something in me, that was good and wanted that. God probably planned and purposed for me because there's something within me that he wants or needs. There's a little something in me that he had a plan for. And Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that is not the case. You were not living in such a way that God had some plan he needed you for. You were living in rebellion to him. That's why Ephesians 2 starts with the declaration, And you... So after he's proclaimed what he's done to save you, now he's proclaiming, what is your part in this? What role have you played? He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and by nature are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." You're far worse than someone waiting for an ambulance to come. You, you aren't just physically in pain. You don't just need a little bit of help. You don't need a first response or to make things okay. You are dead. No need to call an ambulance. It's already been declared. You are spiritually without life. There is no hope within you. You're following the course of the world. You are after the things of the world. You're living how they lived. You have believed and bought into and continued in the lies of Satan from the garden in the beginning. The prince of the power of the air. There was nothing you could do. You were by nature, by birth, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are not two groups of people described here. There are all people described. There are none who are not described by those who were dead in their sin and trespasses. The difference is, Christian, this description is for who you were. What you belonged to before Christ called you. Notice this description for your life is written in the past tense. This description for your life is written about who you once were. And something changed. Something dramatic. And that declaration is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. There's an amazing contrast. This is who you once were, but what has happened. But God. Not you, God, but God, being rich in mercy, who has an abundance of wealth to give both pity and pardon to his people. He sees your helpless state. Yes, you are weak, and he has pity upon you. But you are not just weak. You are rebellious and have made yourself an enemy of God, and he gives pardon to you. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice the love is his toward us. Not that we are lovable, but that He is a God who loves. He is a God who loves even His creation that was made to honor Him and glorify Him and chose to rebel against Him. Because of His great love, He has saved you. And there, there's a great statement in verse 5 that clarifies. Because again, you might hear, because of the great love with which He loved us, I'm lovable. And He says, no. The great love with which he loved us even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive together with Christ. So you are loved in Christ. Not because you were loved that you might bring something to Christ. He loves you and has brought you to Christ. That now you live for the glory of God. Because of his grace. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. Seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I hope as you listen to my words this morning, you hear clearly from the book of Ephesians. Salvation is not what we believe and agree on together. It is what God declares And it is clearly proclaimed in the book of Ephesians. Salvation is not about your works. It's not about what you've done. It is a gift from God. And it is for His glory and His praise that He would be praised above all things as He deserves. Because He is rich in mercy and has shown kindness to you. And I will encourage you, maybe your hope is not in Christ. Maybe you hear these things this morning, and like me as a young child and a young man, you hear the weight and the wrath of God. And you are in fear. Your heart feels heavy. You feel not only weak, but you feel rebellious. You feel the weight of God's wrath against you because you know you have not lived to honor Him. Maybe like me and many others, you laid in bed at night at 12 and 13 and 15 and 16 and 22 and feared death because you didn't know what would happen. And though you, maybe as a young child with us, you've heard the truth, The weight is on you because you know the truth, and yet there is something missing. An ability to accomplish it. You can't do it. The message of the Gospel is exactly that. You can't, but He does. It is the gift of God, the grace of God. And so you trust in that truth. You rest your dependence in Him. You live completely dependent upon Him because He saves because He is merciful. You rest on His character because you are called not in what you are going to accomplish but what He has accomplished and His plan to accomplish in you. And the plan to accomplish in you is that you would be holy and blameless before Him. It's why in Ephesians chapter 4 there is then a shift. He says, Therefore, I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a way that is worthy of this calling, a calling completely done by Him, a calling that cost you nothing, a calling completely given to you in grace, a calling completely His, that has removed guilt from you, has removed sin from you, has made it that you are not dead in your sins and trespasses following the course of the world, but you once were and now you are His, abundantly loved and given mercy and grace, and therefore how ought you to live to His praise and glory, to see Him accomplish what He has promised. You're not to resist it. You are to dive into the truth that He has promised that you will be holy and blameless because of Him. You're to trust in Him. You're to depend on Him. You are to rest in Him. You don't look at your life and say, what can I do to surprise God? What plans can I make that will God will just be like, Whoa, I did not expect that. Those people are good. Man, that was awesome. I just love the way they surprised me. That's why I saved them. No. No, he's a good father. He has laid out the plan. And better than a father, he knows all. And he has given you commands. He's given clarity has said, this is what it means to be holy and blameless. In Ephesians 5, we will start that we are to live as imitators of God. But in Ephesians 4, he proclaims, because this is how you were called, completely by God's grace, completely by his faithfulness, completely transformed by his work. How, how ought you to live? To be completely conformed to his will. This is the manner in which he called you. And therefore, this is the manner in which you should live, I would describe it, and many have, by faith and repentance. You should live in faith and repentance, longing to see God glorified, longing to honor Him. And this is a relationship of love for Christ. So all of that for the sake of introduction, let me bring you now to Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, I thank you that you have not instructed us where to pray before we preach. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that that we can pray at any time. And I just pray this morning, God, as I have sought to proclaim your gospel from the book of Ephesians, I thank you that that we are not dependent upon my words. but yours. I I pray that you would use the proclamation of the gospel to change hearts. I pray, Father, for those who do not know you, that they would believe that your spirit would work on them. I pray, Father, for those of us who have placed our trust in you, that you have given faith that we might live to honor you and glorify you. I pray you would change hearts this morning, Lord, because we love you and we want you to be praised. I pray you would do it for your son's sake, for the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would transform your people. Not that people would be impressed by us, not that they would be impressed by our church or our families, but they would bow before you, the King of all. We thank you for your glory. Your name, your mercy, and your grace. We pray you would give it to us mightily through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Sermon number two. So let's look together then at this passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 and 30 uh, through 32. I want you to notice two things here about living a life of faith and repentance. First, a life of faith and repentance. Motivated by our relationship in Christ. As we have learned and summarized this morning in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 up to 4, we have been called in Christ. We love Him. We are thankful for Him. We seek to live for Him because of what He has accomplished. And here in verse 30, we see a motivation for that. We, we see what should motivate our action. And we say this often in, in many ways, some ways that people find frustrating and unhelpful like moral imperatives flow from redemptive indicatives (laughs) or ones that people maybe find more helpful uh, that we do what we do because what Christ has done and so we seek to live in the truth because Christ has accomplished it or to say it more clearly moral imperatives flow from redemptive indicatives what he has done that is true compels us to live a certain way that is honorable and good For his glory and praise. And so, Paul, being the man he is, led by the Spirit, cannot but stop and motivate us by the truth of what Christ has accomplished. And he does so here in verse 30. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember from Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is who has sealed you. When you responded to the truth of the gospel, Your future wasn't based on your ability to hold that commitment. That calling was by Christ, and you were then committed by the Spirit. The Spirit of God sealed you. He marked you as His. Like a letter sent in the ancient world would have wax on that letter, and then it would be sealed, marked, labeled for who it is. It would say, this seal is not to be broken until it's delivered. This comes from the King. Like many of us, brand our animals. No, we don't do that. But we could if we had them. We would brand our cattle to say, whose cow is that? It's branded and sealed. If someone else comes and says, I want that ribeye, that ribeye belongs to me. My initials are on its back hip. That's my cow. He's going to my freezer. Praise God, God is not going to eat you. He is going to save you. You have an eternal inheritance. You're not labeled like a cow. You are his possession that he loves and cares for, adopted. We rejoice at that. We, we give thanks at that. Christians can say, I'm a slave to Christ with a smile on their face in joy. The world can't say that because they're enslaved to sin. Christian, to love Christ means far more than to be glad you got a get-out-of-hell-free card. It means to rejoice in the glory of God. And as he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you, it is a declaration of you are marked as saved. So why would you want to break the heart of the one who saved you? It is a relational call. He's marked you. He saved you. He's made you alive. And you, therefore, are no longer, verse 17, to walk in the futility of your mind, verse 18, to walk in the dark and distance from God. What are you to do, verse 22 we looked at, to put on? Or rather, to put off our old self to live in repentance, and to put on the new self to live in faith in Christ. The Spirit has made his work effectual in our hearts. Titus describes it this way: He says, "But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As Paul wrote this to Titus, inspired by the holy spirit he declares here similar to what we see in ephesians this is the grace of god that he has saved you he has changed your heart it's by his grace that he showed you mercy he has transformed you he poured richly upon you because of christ the savior i want you to imagine a a trust fund kid someone who was born uh, not in many common things talked about privilege now uh, in the way that we are all privileged as americans but someone who was born as would used to be described with a silver spoon in their mouth. They were born with everything. Born like everyone else, naked and has nothing with them, but given everything, everything handed to them. And you could think of the sadness. The Proverbs describe a foolish child as a shame to his father, is a disgrace to his mother. It brings them pain and agony. Maybe you remember these conversations as a kid when your dad would say something like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. And your heart would go, I wish you were just mad. I wish you were just angry so I could think, you're so mean. Rather than knowing you love me and what I've done has broken your heart. What I've done is not according to your plan. It has not recognized the blessings. It's like a trust fund kid that squanders his inheritance. It doesn't take what his father has given him and use it for his father's glory. But takes it and goes, "Yeah, my dad's just going to keep giving it to me. That's his job. That's what he does. That is not a heart that loves their father. That's a heart that uses their father. That's a heart that is joyful that their father did something for them so that they could squander it. And a Christian, though you were given it like a trust fund kid, though it's nothing you earned, You love your Father. That is the mark of being a Christian, a heart transformed that longs to obey Him. And yet you know that at many times your life has lived in a way that would dishonor Him, that doesn't glorify Him. You know living in a sinful world, you stumble into sin in ways that you know do not bring Him glory and are a reminder to you of His grace and holiness, a reminder to you of how kind He is, and Christian, when you find your heart stumbling into sin, you remember the promises of 1 John. That he is, he is good and faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when your heart tells you, Jesus has already saved me. Christ has already done it. It's all free grace. When the lies of Satan come to your mind and you think, I can live this way. I can steal. I can fester in anger. I can lie. I can speak to destroy people rather than build them up. When your heart compels you that you ought to live this way because God has forgiven you, don't comfort yourself. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. So just do it and then confess later. That's a false comfort. Compel yourself that you do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who He has placed in you, where sin does not belong, that He is yours and you are His, that you love Him. And even if your heart wants something else, and even if you don't understand, you trust that your Father is good, and you are going to live compelled to what He has commanded, what He has said, As Paul already encouraged us, as the Spirit has already written to us, we are to put off the old self in the former life. We are to live in repentance, to turn from that. Don't be tempted because He is good and gracious in your calling. Love Him and realize the grief and the agony when someone you love lives in sin against you. Recognize the pain because that is the right response to sin. Because he loves us when we sin, he is grieved and in pain. It breaks his heart. It gives sorrow to the spirit because he knows more fully the cost of sin. If he was to respond in apathy, if the spirit of God was not grieved when you sin, he would not be recognizing the cost of Christ. If he just said, it's okay, it's no big deal, Jesus paid for it anyway. No, he knows what it costs Christ, It cost you will never know. A cost you could not pay. The eternal wrath of God poured on him for you. And so the Spirit rightly does not respond apathetic. He does not say, it's no big deal, everybody does it. He is grieved and in sorrow because that is the right emotion when sin is committed. It should cause us grief. I'd encourage you to look at 2 Corinthians 7, where grief should lead to repentance. We're not going to go there this morning, but it's a helpful place to see what grief should lead to for a Christian. Genuine repentance. But the Holy Spirit is one whom we love, a triune God who saved us. And so He does not respond apathetic to your sin. He is grieved. He doesn't excuse it as no big deal because Christ paid for it. He also doesn't execute wrath and punishment against us because he knows Christ paid for it. There is no wrath remaining for us. Christ has taken it. God does not live above you like a father waiting to swing at you, waiting for you to mess up. He is a good father who loves you and longs for you to be made to his plan that you would be holy and blameless and knows how to do it. So he disciplines you in love or he instructs you in kindness and in providence like no father can, he directs all of your life to His glory. But wherever you are, you can trust. He has given me clear commands, and I will trust Him. So for a Christian, our motivation is not to avoid the temporary pain that continuing sin might cause. Our motivation is relational, because we know that God has saved us. Too often as Christians, we want to go to the Word of God, and we want to say, you know what, my marriage just is... I was going to say something, and then there's kids, and... Anyway, it's not good. It's bad. It really hurts. It's a stinky marriage. And so as you feel the burden of this is stinky, this doesn't smell good, this smells like death, it's like I'm on an earth that's futile and decaying and we can never perfectly get along. You have the word of God to remind you of the truth. And you have hope in Christ that he does restore, he does bring grace and repentance. But your motivation can't be, I want to escape the stinkiness of my marriage. You've got to live in the reality of where you are to the glory of Christ. Yes, it is good to desire a better marriage, but it is wrong to pursue the commands of Christ just for a better marriage. And what will come when your hope is not in Christ, but it is in your marriage? It's often hard to tell, right, in the beginning. Like, I I want a good marriage. Of course, I want a good marriage. God wants that, and so sometimes it's hard for me to tell why am I pursuing this. But it's easy when trial comes. When trial comes, and our hearts depend on God, we know we trust God. He has brought this about for a purpose. I'm working through this to His glory. I'm going to stay faithful to His commands. But when the trial comes, and we say, let me be very clear, when my heart says I'm not going to be understanding to Lauren, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. This isn't giving us a good marriage. I know that is me worshiping marriage, worshiping my own comfort, not worshiping God. Because God has given me clear commands. Live with your wife in an understanding way. That you might give honor to her as the weaker vessel. Because she is an heir with you in the grace of life. Because she's been called. Even the motivation there. Why do you love her? Not so she will love you. Because he has loved her. Because he has called her. Children, why do you seek to obey your parents? Because you don't like discipline and you hope when you ask for ice cream, they'll say yes. Right? Those aren't bad things. Discipline's painful for a time. And ice cream's pretty much good all the time. But just because you want those things should not be your motivation to live on earth in obedience to God. God is gracious. He gives children the promise in a way he doesn't give other promises. He says, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And if you do, you will live long in the land, right? There's a promise in there for kids and for children to parents to obey for a current blessing that will come. But the ultimate glory in that is that you would learn the authority of God, that you would learn to rest under Christ, that you would long to obey your parents because you know that God is a good authority. So as I have used very general things that would apply to us in life and relationships, I want you to remember the things we've spoken of over the past weeks and the very specific things that cut us deep. Things we quickly give over to. Things like lying and anger. Things like theft. And things like speech that destroys and cuts down others. These are things that grieve the Spirit. And let our motivation not alone be what we get out of obeying God, but let our motivation be to obey God Because he has given us everything in Christ. Let us live to love him, not grieve the Spirit. For the sure hope of your inheritance is in him. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you are not purposed to be made holy and blameless, but you are officially made holy and blameless before him in love. When forever you will live, not as one that is being brought to holiness and blamelessness by the cost of Christ and the love of God and the work of the Spirit. Not one who is just justified because you have been saved by him. Not one who's just sanctified because you're his. He is making that more and more of a reality in your life. But you are one who will be glorified. No longer no sin, no longer no tears. You will be unfading, imperishable, forever his in the glory of Christ. And the Spirit is the one who has marked you for that. So as He is bringing you there, do not resist Him, do not ignore Him, do not rebel against Him, but rest in Him. Because you are waiting to be not just knowing that you will be holy and blameless, but to forever be holy and blameless before Him. The motivation is relational because He has loved us. And as a result, we love Him. He first loved us, but because He has loved us, we love Him. We have a sure and steady hope in the Spirit of God that we were sealed for a future day, a day, of re- a day of redemption. And so therefore, we live then a life of faith and repentance motivated by our redemption in Christ. We live motivated in the redemption of Christ, no longer wanting to be given to sin. And I want you to listen to the sins that He says bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, along with malice. These are sins that we, as American Christians, I think often count as light, right? We look at the world, and we see sinful things they do. We go, I'm not like that. I'm not like them. We pray as the Pharisee, not the tax collector. We say, God, thank you that you've redeemed my family, that I don't live like the pagans. Thank you, Father, that you've redeemed me from those things that that I have a holy marriage and a faithful marriage. Thank you that I am not like those evil pagans. Rather than recognizing the commands of God reveal our heart in ways we don't even understand, things are going to come up, things like bitterness. It is often hard to tell, but bitterness is a constant and remaining animosity toward someone else. You know what your face looks like when you eat something bitter, right? It's one of the joys of giving sour or bitter food to a new baby because they don't know. They see a lemon and maybe they've previously had an orange and they think that's great. I remember a childhood neighbor coming up to my dad when I was little and he was cutting an onion and she thought it was an apple and said, can I have a slice of the apple? And he gave her a slice (laughs) and she took a bite and realized that is not an apple. That's what Satan does to you. He lets you live in something, thinking it feels like, it looks like, it kind of seems like this. And then you realize, this is bitter. I've been letting my heart wander in places that it should not. When your heart comes there, you make the face, right? You That's not where I want to be. I need to deal with my heart when it has wandered. Wrath or the desire to use all of your energy, all of your effort to bring punishment towards someone else a desire or the action of expressing all the power you have to express displeasure toward someone else. That's man's ability in wrath. Anger, a feeling of severe dislike or hatred. Clamor, to cry out loudly against one another. To make known, right? To vent, to slander, to speak in ways that are harming or injuring someone else's reputation. Rather than loving them and caring for them, to call them to repentance, you just communicate their flaws to everyone else. Oh, you do it in the name of prayer. Oh, please pray for my husband. Let me give you a list of why. Oh, please pray for my wife. Oh, you don't understand the woman as God has given me. Please pray for my evil children. No. Oh, please, please pray for my neighbors. so hard. This is why, and this is why, and this is why. Why not hold back your tongue? Rather than slander their reputation, why don't you ask for prayer and the grace of God in what you have been commanded? Please pray for me to be faithful, to live in an understanding way, and to love my wife, no matter where my heart's at. Please pray for me to submit to my husband, to respect him, to love my children, no matter where my heart's at. Please pray for me to do all I can to live in peace with my neighbor, no matter what he does. These aren't things. These are things that I've planned and purposed, written in my notes, tried to write into my heart. Jake, when you're here, pray that God would help you. Don't pray to slander those you love, those who God has given you to love. To do so is to live in the last malice, a mean-spirited feeling or action towards someone else, to have a spirit that does not want their good And I want you to notice something. I put it in the statement for this section. It's, put it away, y'all, living in repentance together. The yous here are all plural. You're called to be part of a community of God's people living to put this to death. We're not called, you go do this on your own, and then you come gather at church in your Sunday clothes with your Sunday attitude so that they think you're a super great Christian. No, we live in the truth of the gospel together that we are going to fail in sin and we need one another to help us repent and resist bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. It's why he says, In him y'all were also called when y'all heard the word of truth and the gospel of y'all's salvation, believed in him, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of each and every one of us, all of our, repentant, our, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory of God. It's why he says, Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from y'all. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave y'all. There's a plural you. A plural you that we often ignore and is littered throughout Scripture. We don't pursue repentance in Christ alone. You are grieving the Spirit if you think you are going to do this without the help that he has promised and he has purchased for you in Christ. You were not saved alone. Would Christ have died for you alone? That's not our question. That's God's question. That doesn't belong to you. He didn't save you alone. You are his and he's called you with others. That you might live in a community that becomes less and less like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Because we're putting that away from all of us, along with malice. And a community then that is kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Notice the commands of living in faith as those forgiven together. You're not commanded just to put off, but in grace you are commanded to put something on because what's going to happen around you? We are going to continue to fail to put off bitterness, to put off anger, to put off slander. We are going to continue to fail to live as holy and blameless and perfect. And we are going to continue to help one another, to point one another back to the glory of Christ. Motivated by what? He forgave you as God in Christ forgave you. It is rooted in his calling, rooted in what he has accomplished. It's why Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Why ought you to be humble and gentle and forgiving? Because God has been gracious and humble to you. He called you in grace and humility. And so you are commanded here, what are you to be? To be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kind, you are to be intent on the good of the other, making benefit to them. You are to put effort into the benefit of others. That is kindness. That is the kind of kindness that God has shown you. At the cost of Christ, he has been kind to you. He's kind to the whole world. As they rebel against him, he continues to make the sun shine. So much more so in Minifee than other places, he is gracious to us, that the sun shines that the stars come out, that the world continues, that there is food and there is blessing in life. He is kind to us. If you were to be tender-hearted, not kind in bitterness, not kind in why do I have to keep being kind to these people? They don't appreciate my kindness. No, the opposite of wrath and anger and malice toward others is tender-heartedness, to be quick to compassion for them, sympathetic for them, affectionate toward them. Longing for their good. Living in Christ for his promises means looking at others of what Christ is seeking to accomplish in them, not what they are currently annoying you in. Be tender hearted. Look to them with the grace of Christ. Know that he has a plan for his people to be holy and blameless. Be one who in kindness. And longing is tender-hearted and compassionate towards others. That doesn't mean you never rebuke one another. It doesn't mean you don't point out sin to one another. But it does mean you don't slander them. And you don't clamor at them. You don't shout at them and yell at them about how they need to change. And don't they know what Christ has commanded? So many times if we could just stop in those moments and think about what Christ has commanded us as we're yelling at someone else what Christ has commanded them if we could humble our hearts to be tender-hearted and compassionate, if we could remember how Christ has forgiven us in tenderness and compassion, that he loved us not when we made ourselves alive. When we were dead in our sins, he, because of his love and mercy, made us alive in Christ. He loved us when we were not lovable. Christian, how will you have the motivation to love the unlovable? Because you know you have been loved by God when you were unlovable. You have been forgiven in Christ, and therefore we are commanded to forgive one another. As you hear this this morning, Christian, this is where I don't want your heart to go. You know what? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, I think of, I know a whole bunch of people who function that way. I can't believe those people. What kind of Christians are they? Why would they do that? You know who really needs to hear this message? As I often encourage you, you, that's why God in Providence brought you here. That's why he sat you here. That's why he wrote it. That's why this is here, because you need it. I know you have many problems in your life right now. You have many things in your life that bring you frustration, many decisions you're trying to make, many actions on earth that is a temporary place and a perishing place that you have right to responsibility to say, I've got to think about what's right to do here, Jake. I just need practical help. Listen to the Word of God. What is practical for you is to fight with your heart that you would not be bitter, that you would not have wrath, that you would not be a person of anger or clamor, that you would not slander others, that you would not live in malice, just a evil, mean spirit toward others, but you would be one who puts that away whatever trials God has before you, that you would be kind to others, that you would look for their benefit in proclaiming the truth of the gospel, making it known, that you would do so in compassion, tenderheartedness, a desire for their good, a want for them to have what God has promised for his people, that you would make the gospel clear. And you do not do so expecting that everyone is going to conform to your words. You do so knowing that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. And He is conforming those He loves in Christ. Not by their righteousness, but by His forgiveness. That He has forgiven them. That we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so I want to encourage y'all to live in faith. To live in the hope of Christ to recognize this is a community event. If there are places in your heart that you've been grieving the Spirit, if there are ways you've been living that you know cause grief to God, I want to encourage you to confess to one another. And I know many of you are faithful to do that. Many of you function in regular confession and repentance. Many of you live your life not every day trying to find what's evil in you, but every day finding that there is evil in you and seeking to root it out by confessing to others. To say that God is good and gracious because you don't live for the evil of the world. You live longing for the holiness of Christ. And so as you see evil, how do you root that out of your life? You commit in Christ to live for Him. And that means confession. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Confess your sins because He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you all from unrighteousness. And you seek to live in faith to be kind, to encourage one another, to live in repentance, to know I'm not going to do that anymore, to even tell someone, you know what, my heart is prone to be malicious, to have evil intent. I'm not a very tender-hearted person outside of Christ, but I trust him. And I have seen an example in you of tender-heartedness. You love people in a way that it doesn't work in my heart. That person is probably gifted in mercy. And they are gifted not so that they can function in mercy, and you can continue being a jerk. <laughs> They're gifted in mercy that you might have an example of what it looks like to be like Christ. And so you pursue them and you say, what does it mean to be tender-hearted? Can you help me? How do you live in forgiveness of others? How are you so kind to others? And they will tell you it's because of what Christ has done, and they will help you to follow them as they follow Christ. Christian, I want to encourage you to walk worthy of your calling. and That means walking together walking together not for our benefit, not for social reasons, not just for the things we want in earth, but for the glory of Christ, that his name would be praised as it will be, but it would be praised now with our voices and in our lives. Let me pray that God would be so gracious to do so, and then together we will be reminded through communion that he has done so in Christ. Father, thank you that you are God who is good and faithful. And I thank you, Lord, as... Uh, Our hearts are often a a wicked mess, but we can rest in your promises that though our hearts are deceitful, your spirit is good and he has transformed the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, you would call many this morning. I pray that you would encourage those who of you have called and regularly gathered together with us. I thank you, Father, for faithful Christians joining from other places this morning and and your work is far beyond even what we accomplish, uh, which is nothing (laughs) without you. Pray, Lord, you would give grace and, and reminders to us of our need for you in faith and repentance as we participate in communion together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.